Let's have the discussion. You're listening to Canter with Scott and Adam. Hello and welcome to Canter. I'm Scott Hillier. And I'm Adam Breeze. And in this episode, we chat with world-renowned hash guru, Frenchie Canoli. In our first chat with Frenchie, he tells us about his travels, where for nearly two decades, he travelled to the world's hash-producing nations, living a nomadic lifestyle. Frenchie tells us about the regional intricacies affecting hash flavours, aromas and effects, and gives us a passionate description of the famous Papadi Valley in India. Enjoy the chat, and don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Canter Podcast. Let's get into it. Hello and welcome to Canter. Adam, how are you doing today, mate? Very well, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, mate. I'm a little bit nervous because we have a very high-profile guest that we've got a hell of a lot of respect for, Frenchie Canoli. Welcome to the show, mate. Thank you for having me. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing to be able to talk to you on the other side of the world like that. And uh, hello, Australia. I wish I could come personally. I wish... It's going to be soon. Yeah, fingers crossed, mate. Uh, I hope the world starts to open up again uh, shortly. And yeah, we can, uh, we'd love to be able to start meeting some of these guests that we've been getting on. And it'd be a very special experience to, to get to spend some time with you, buddy. I mean, it's like it's, uh, you may feel outside the, the mainstream, but you're, uh, you're part of the world. That plant is everywhere. And it's networking and being together that will make a difference. So it's like, it's pretty important to really connect and put our knowledge together because that's what makes us strong is that knowledge and the skill we have with the plant. Yeah, that's really cool. When we talk about the knowledge, you have a specific area of expertise and that is hash, hashish. You are known worldwide (laughs) as the hash man. It's part of my culture. It, in Europe, it's what we smoke. My uh, all, all the the literature I uh, I cherish the most are all stoners from the Ashishin Club. Uh, you know what I mean? Since Napoleon, since the 18th century, it's really part of the European culture. I uh, even when I was a kid, some of my Best adventure book, my favorite of favorite heroes was a dude called Henri de Montfred, who uh, was a son of like uh, artistic uh, parents, friend of Gauguin, like pretty good family. And the guy split, went to the Red Sea, built a, a local boat with the local people, and for 25 years, he just uh, died for pearl and smuggled arm and ashes from Greece to, uh, to Egypt. That dude was my hero when I was like, I was reading his book, I, I was 11 years old, but I didn't know what was Ash. It was just like the adventure, the tropic, and that's why I, I travel. It's like my childhood was really uh, all about adventurer, Persia, and Thousand uh, and, uh, and One Night, and... Uh, India and I did forget a little bit about it when I was a teenager and then you know you reach when you're 17 years old your childhood has been pretty fucked up because you had never had any choice any freedom whatsoever all your life it's been order and if you don't listen they beat you out to teach you something so when I was 17, it's like, dude, I just had 
17 years where I fucking suffered and now I'm facing 40 years of something even worse. That I, I, I was lost until I smoked my first joint, my first beef, Lebanese. It's like, I could, it's more than the stone. I mean, the stone was like, I had never been as happy as since I was a little boy. You know, when, when you're so full of joy of life that running anything is joy, like pure joy. I had never had that feeling since I was a little boy. And the taste and the smell of ash was like all the stories that eat me like a train. Is that on that day I say, oh, this is what I want to do. I just want to travel. I want pure freedom. I want nothing but my freedom to travel. And I did that for 18 years solid. As soon as I reached, I, I started to smoke. I was 17, but I was 17 end of the year. So it took me a minute before I get to 18. You know what I mean? <laughs> but as soon as I was 18, I was gone. I didn't go back to France for 18 years solid. Wow. And I just traveled. That's all I did for 18 years solid. So, so your first joint was a was an inspiration to you. It was a, a life changing moment, and it was uh... yeah. It, it was it was really uh, a life changing uh, experience. Yeah, for sure, yeah. <laughs> Hence, you're here now. <laughs> But to to tell you how dangerous and. Uh, how it was seen, it was seen, it was the greatest sin you could do when you were a teenager. My best friend that I knew for, I don't know how many years, it took him six months before he found the balls to ask me if I wanted to smoke with him. He was so scared yeah. that it would break our, uh, our relationship. That it's like, basically, if you smoke ash, not only you destroy your life, but you destroy the life of your family and everybody that you like the most. No pressure. <laughs> you know what I mean? And at the same time, you experience the most, the most joyful experience ever since you were a kid. It's like, dude, some stuff don't really compute well there. And I wanted to travel, but to avoid that... Uh, I mean, the, the little bit I left, lived in France, it's like I had a fucking target on me, like cops. It's like, you're, you're a target. They want to put you in jail. It's like, they're looking for it. It's like, this is the most evil stuff that you can do to society, actually, also, to cover it all. You know what I mean? Dude, the pressure is huge. And when you're 17, it fucks you up. I just needed to get out of it. Going into a producing country was, it was still illegal, but it was part of the culture. So in, in Muslim country where we were to make ashish, it's not really well seen, you know, and look at, but you're just a bad boy. You know what I mean? You're not a evil doing yeah. shit anymore. It's like you're just a bad boy. And then I went to India. In India, it's spiritual. It's like cannabis was born in the drop of the elixir of life that fall from the sky when it was made by the gods. It's like it's a pretty big deal. 
and it changed everything. It's like it's still illegal. Huh? Don't get me wrong, but it's it's like it it gave me a different vision of what I was doing to myself. You know what I mean? It's like even if you know it's not bad for you, uh, since everybody is telling you that it's really bad to do it, there is still pressure. I, I had that pressure until I came to the States and I realized that the plant was medicinal. Then it changed everything. It's like it really, really changed me deeply, deeply, even more than the time I spent in India where it was spiritual. I was feeling pretty comfortable to do it, but the realization that it's actually a medicine and that you have been treating yourself all of your life, it's changed everything. Dude, I'm smoking exactly the same amount of ash I was smoking when I was 20 years old in India. So I was truly medicating myself and I'm yeah. still medicating at the same level, more or less. Yeah, it's a bit stronger, the level of THC. Okay, fine. But it's like it's, you know what I mean? It's basically the same. There is not, uh, I, I thought I was taking more because there is your body uh, adapt to it. Building In fact, no, I'm just taking exactly what I need. Yeah, that's If you don't have that consciousness that it's also a medicine that like the Denis Perron says, like even if you're stoner, you don't know that you're medicating, but dude, you're medicating. Yes. And you're the best to know what the dose you need, kind of, you know? So do you feel people are drawn to cannabis uh, subconsciously due to this medicating, uh, this desire to medicate? Do you, do you believe that people have a naturally draw and are naturally drawn towards this plant to a certain point i will think so yeah. yeah but i can't say for me it was like uh when i smoke it was it's like when you've been beaten and ill-treated all your life everything that society tell you not to do do it that's the first thing you're gonna do okay and uh that was more like it but then you start to smoke and since smoking is bad, uh, everything else that the, the, the police or the, the society is telling you that is bad as a drug, it's all the same for you too. You know, I mean, if they lie on ash, they lie on smack, they lie on coke, they lie on everything. And then you go overboard and you can kill yourself when you're really young. If you have enough consciousness to be able to... Uh, to connect with cannabis and understand that it's a medicine, even if it's not conscious, uh, it's going to save your butt, basically. You know what I mean? It's like when you don't know what drug is and everything is bad, you're fucked. I, I have 80% of my friends that, that, that died from AIDS and, uh, and OD because they didn't know what was smack. And you couldn't, sm you couldn't buy ash in the street. Well, hero was everywhere. People were shooting hero. And that's a huge part of, uh, of prohibition. It's like they, there is so, so much misinformation that you literally destroy your uh, society because they're ill-informed. It's super sad. Yeah, and I guess that's what... Uh we're sort of doing here and a, a lot of people around the world seem to be doing right now, such as yourself, where it's about sort of opening up 
and uh, changing some of those uh, perceptions and some of that stigma. I mean, you talk about when you're 17 and you had this immense fear uh, of consuming the joint. You, you felt like you'd done something terribly bad. And uh, now you're at this point where you feel very positive about consuming cannabis. Um, I guess that that evolution has come from you moving into areas where there is uh, a different sort of cultural stigma uh, attached to it, um, and you've gradually evolved. I mean, there is still a stigma here. Okay, it's legalized, but on my packaging, it's written down in capital letters that I'm selling a Schedule One drug on the legal market. So it's not really legal. Yeah. As long as it's on Schedule One, it is not legal. Uh-huh. But I uh, I have the right to make ash. I, I I can I can tell people I work in the cannabis industry. You know I don't hide anymore. I, uh, not be not being an outlaw. Uh, after a life of it, it's a pretty big deal. It's like I was for 18, 20 years, I just travel. Then I, for 20 years, I was a dad and I lied to everybody, but my wife and my daughter, because she never, uh, she never asked me. So I didn't have to lie to her, but like I will, I lived in a society where I had to hide what I was doing so that they wouldn't take my daughter away from me, dude. This is really just smoking myself for myself, not doing anything. Yeah. But I was scared to tell anybody that I was doing it because I was afraid to lose my daughter. I felt comfortable to go into the legal uh, market when my daughter left home so that I, uh, there was nothing that could happen at that level. So, you know, I mean, it's like, uh, yeah, it's legal, but the stigma is still there. Even with a big business and the big money, we are just stoners. We don't have the respect. Yeah. Look at Canada. They build up like a, a whole economy, hundreds of billions of dollars in stock exchange. They have hundreds of millions of square feet of greenhouse. They've never grown anything but swag that they can't even sell to their own people. But they don't use the legacy people, the legacy market to create the legal market. Dude, if you don't understand the first principle of selling drugs, if it's swag, you will not sell it. You will sit on it because there is better than it. Well, uh, you need to go to school and start uh, your ABC. You know what I mean? That's, that's people who have been working in the cannabis community illegally that can teach us that. You, but we don't have that respect. Yeah. I think it's uh, fascinating that you bring up your, your daughter and um, your fear of having her taken away from you purely for consuming cannabis. And it's it's quite scary to think we live in what we believe to be a free society, yet you can do something that harms absolutely no individual. You You pass no harm. There's no victim to what you do. Yet someone can come to your house with guns and handcuffs and collect you and take you away and lock you in a cage. Look, the endocannabinoid system we have in our body was born with the first molecular life in the ocean one billion years ago. Okay? Then, almost a billion years ago, uh, later, 28 million years ago, 
the cannabis plant is evolved and the only plant that can produce the cannabinoids that will lock in a receptor of mammals that are, that will be born 25 million plus years later. Uh, this literally encompasses the whole evolution of all life on the planet. When you think that there is one chance in a billion for any species to survive evolution, dude, uh, if that plant is not connected to us, I don't know what is. Yeah, it's yeah. way beyond. It's if you if you believe in God, well, ah, there is a serious clue here. If you believe in evolution, well, same same for you. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. it's it's the deal. We are supposed to be together, and we need the help of this plant to be able to be whole. It's pretty damn obvious when you look at the history of stuff. You know what I mean? That's really well put. That was really cool. Um, <laughs> now, Frenchie, that that's that's fascinating. Now, you talk about your travels early in your eighteen to twenty years of travel. I really want to delve into that a little bit because to me, this sounds like the uh, the ultimate adventure. It sounds really fascinating. I'm sure we've all watched like the Strain Hunters documentaries where Ayan and and Franco have gone out into the mountains and spent some time with these people. You did this as a lifestyle for a number of decades. Can we touch on when you're 17 and where you went? But when I was 17, I needed to, to wait until I was 18. So yeah, I sure, walked yeah. a little bit to the Club Med, which was, you know what is the Club Mediterranean? Yeah, sure, yeah. Well, I, I, did, I did a little uh, two years there, like four seasons. And, uh, and then I was uh, over my 18 years old. I just wanted to travel. I didn't want, I, I just wanted to travel. That's it. I didn't want nothing to stop me to do anything ever so that I could go anytime, anywhere. If somebody, why don't you come with me? But sure, why not? I, I'm going nowhere. I'm just traveling. I didn't have, I didn't have a schedule. I didn't go specifically somewhere. I just arrived in a country. From there, I was pretty much open to uh, to anything. The only thing was I needed to spend three to four months in a producing country, deep in a producing place, to be able to make my stash for the year. That's all. That's so it's cool. like I would spend three, four months to, to make my ash, and then I would go and smoke it on the beach, basically, to tell you the truth. <laughs> traveling around it's like I, I took my retirement plan up front it's like i how did i know <laughs> to get to 60 i didn't know when i was 18 years old that i could get to 60 in the first place you can you know i mean you die yeah. tomorrow because you split you sleep in uh, in your bathtub dude i'm not gonna wait until i'm 60 to really do what really i really want look i'm 63 now i can't fucking travel so uh, and that was it. It's like I don't, I don't want to think about tomorrow. It's now that counts. It's like there is nothing but right now. And if right now I'm not enjoying myself and doing something I really, really, really want to do, that every morning when I wake up I'm dying to get my day starting. If I don't have that in my life, something is really, really wrong. And 
it's harder to keep it when you get older, but that's the name of the game. It's like you need to be able to wake up in the morning and to want your life because it's cool. That's what you that's what you wanted to do truly. You know what I mean? That's that's super fascinating. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I I could imagine being at such a young age in in these countries just waking up and making hash and that would just be such an amazing experience. So one thing I notice is you're just so fascinated by hash. And I want to know, has it always been that way or did it develop over the years? No, it's all, the first time I smoked hash the following day, I was pressing hash. <laughs> I was fascinated by it. <laughs> when I was a kid, I didn't have the money to pay for, uh, for my hash. I didn't have pocket money when I was a kid. So, uh, I, uh, my best friend who was Marocan, his brother was a dealer and I worked for the brother. I was repressing shitty Moroccan and make it look like a super three star, uh, Lebanese, uh, red Lebanese, just by playing with, uh, booze, sugar, anything sticky that can, that can make something uh, lose strike on gland with no resin inside look good. Huh? You talk about the Lebanese hash. And that just was- by doing this, I was able to, uh, to be able then to go in a producing country and just to make hash because I understood. I didn't under, I didn't know what was a gland, a strike on gland. I had never seen it. We call that pollen, but I had the basic of the story. It's like you shake the plant, the pollen fall, it's a little bit dirty. You uh, you use your sieve to separate it to get it as clean as possible. Then you press it. If it doesn't press well, bah, it's shitty quality, but you can make it happen. That was my basic uh, education when I went the first time in uh, in Morocco. And then by by working alongside the people, even if you you're not there to learn, you're there to make your stage. Well, you, you learn. It's like the, all these people that hosted me for months because it's not only I, uh, it, it's a, <laughs> you have to make a serious deal to be able to. So you go in a place in the middle of nowhere in a producing country. So it's most of the time a bit hot, but it's, it's not bad. The only things you have for you. It's your knowledge and your love for raising. Okay. And then you go in the house of somebody. The guy is business for generation. It's to sell ash. And he sees a lot of people and they do big business. Usually, you know what I mean? So you're really a nobody with no money in your pocket. And so when you arrived in the, the first time, the guy is going to show you the first series of samples. That's the stuff even his great-grandfather couldn't sell. Okay? You're going to see the worst of the worst the first time. Then, oh, no, I don't, I don't think so. Thank you very much. Oh, no, no, no problem. Another tea, ta, ta, ta. Hop, he brings you the second level of quality that you want to sell. And it's a, it's a kind of game just for him to know what you know. Because if you can sell the lowest quality to a stranger, well, everybody does it in every producing country. You know what I mean? It's the name of the game. 
And then you reach to the stage where the guy is showing you the stuff. You know that you reach uh, high and this is not even what I want. Me, I want their stash. Yeah, okay. <sighs> it's, that's not for sale. So the deal is for me to make the stash, it's going to be uh, five to 10% return maximum of whatever I'm going to do. So I need to buy a lot of bundle to make my little stash, but I make a lot of hash while I do my little my little stash. So the deal is, if I leave you all this in super good condition to sell after me, I take only that, how much I pay for all those bundle. And oh, by the way, I'm going to live with you all the time I'm, I'm working. You know what I mean? It's like, shh. <laughs> now that I'm older, thinking about it, it's like, yeah, how did I fucking manage it like that? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, and at the same time, it's it's like I felt so, not, to do, not it, that it was due to me, but it's like, it was kind of normal. It's like, and the name of the game is to be able to give much more than what you take. And what you give, it's just your, the work that you put in the room to make the ash that pay for it. I'm fucking fine with that. I do the work. I love the work anyway. And so in ash, in Muslim country, it was, it's a little bit more difficult to, to get really what you want. When you're in India, you rent field or you do wild cannabis in a, in a mountain. So it's really what you stick on your hands that count. What you leave, it's on the plant. And it's uh, it's for the goat, basically. It's wasted. But there is so much in those mountains that you don't really, you don't really feel that, uh, that you're wasting. You know what I mean? You're just making the best of the best. And I, I, I had never the thoughts of I, I'm leaving something on the plant. Uh, I'm not sure if I would be the same now is all I know, but at that time, I, I didn't feel that it was a crime just to caress slightly the, the, the flower instead of going hardcore to get more when what I wanted was only the best of the best. The rest is is for the good. It's a place. It's uh, You know what I mean? I never thought about wasting it Possibly because of the place I, I was. It's uh, the Parvati Valley. Parvati is the wife of Shiva. Uh, cannabis is supposed to have been born in a, in Indian religion in a, in the Himalayan mountain. So everything you do like that, as long as you, there is love towards the plant, it's you, there is no uh, no need to really maximize and get everything that you can. It almost it would almost felt. Uh, I received to do that. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, uh, there is so much, I, I don't know how to explain it. There is so much there. There is plentifulness that you can, you can only pick the ripest fruit and, uh, and not feel guilty that you take all the tree with you. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's, <laughs> there's an abundance of, there's an abundance of plants there is what you're saying. And, and, and there's so much there that you know that, you know, even if you harm a few plants um, in, in in your search for the finest, um, you know that there's still plenty more 
afterwards. So, you, so at the time you didn't feel terribly uh, about rubbing Charis off multiple plants at once. I, I mean, it's like the, it's all the dedication to the quality and there is no other sword that really getting the, the cream on your hand and, and nothing else. So it's really caressing the plants to uh, like caress your wife later. (laughs) (laughs) If you break, if you break the plant, you're going to get water and chlorophyll. Mm -hmm. But then you don't stick anymore. Yeah. So it's like, uh, and your hand are your tool. Also, you cannot sweat. If you have sweaty hand, you're going to be really bad at making charas. And uh, you cannot have oily hand also. I know some people who have oily hand, they just cannot, it, it doesn't stick. They have a hard time getting that first layer where everything sticks on it. Where any other people, you caress slightly your first little plant, already your hand shine and you are. <laughs> so for our listeners that don't know what Charis is, uh, could you just give us a, a brief rundown of what Charis actually yeah. is? Yeah, yeah, sorry about that. So Charas is the first concentrate ever made by humanity. It's live resin collected directly from the plant at the peak of its flowering cycle. It's the most amazing experience ever. It's like I had made ash for a long time before getting to India. Between the bundle of dry flower, I mean, it's true, like a, a, a sieving room is intense, the terpen and everything, and that, whoa. But you need to be covered completely because you cake everywhere. Like you cannot breathe. I, I, I enter the, in Morocco, I wanted to enter the room to see if I, uh, if I could do it like that, like get high at the same time that you walk. I didn't last two minutes, do it. Like even when you're covered, like you're, your eyebrows are stick with resin. It's insane. It's everywhere. But you don't have the same intensity of live plants that you caress when you have like it, all the terpen exploding in your, in your face, literally, and the resin sticking in your hand, going through your skin. When you stay months there, it, it adds up. It's like you live in a, in, in a, it's a different world. I don't know how to explain it. And it's mostly in super remote valley where there is you know, two days walk from, uh, from the closest road. You have to bring everything. Uh, and it's like, you know, when you, your kid, like you build up the house and you kill stuff and you cook them and stuff like a survivalist. I was really deep into it when I was a kid. So for me, to live wild in a mountain of Himalaya was already trippy. But every morning to have like cannabis to, uh, to put on, uh, to collect on my hand was truly magical. If you're not too much into like hardcore mountain uh, stuff like that, yeah, it, you may not last too long. <laughs> but uh, it's worth trying for, uh, for a few weeks, for a few days. It's, it's insane. The, the relation that you have with a plant when it's live resin like that, it, I can just, I, 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 have yeah. I can see on your face <laughs> right now and I can hear it in your voice. You're just uh, so passionate about India. Like, 
that first season, I I was waiting for my best friend to go deep in the mountain. And there's cannabis everywhere. In the valley where I was, there were a lot of nice fields. I did not touch a plant for weeks before I was in the very, very place I, I wanted to be deep, far away, doing specific uh, wild cannabis, specific genetic. I, I really, truly waited. And after that first season, there was nothing in my life that could stop me to go back the next season and do it. Only the birth of my daughter brought back the cycle. Simple. So, <laughs> how many seasons did you spend in India? Some seven, I think. Wow. And you live, did you live I in a cave up there? Eight of my life in India. Sorry? Did you live in a cave up on that mountain? What was, what was your I, shelter? I while, yeah. Yeah, that's. But that's. that's uh, I, I, I never spent winter there. They, the Italian that was the guide of the, the strain hunter lived in a cave there. Yeah, okay. Yeah. In the winter. The guy was amazing. We helped, the, the year he set, it up, he set up there, we were there. Wow. And kind of helped him a little bit. But the dude is. Dude, you live in a cave in the winter there. Uh, there is 30 feet of snow there wow. in the winter. There wow. is bare. There is. It's like it's a fucking Himalayan mountain. And that dude got so much respect living in a cave for seven, five, five or seven years that they built him a house. That's incredible. That's, uh, we got a lot of respect from the local for, for what we were doing, but uh, not, at that, not at that level. In that valley, Malana, you cannot touch. The, there is nothing you can touch. Literally, to cut wood, you need the permission. There is there is a deity of the valley that is super powerful. You don't fuck with them. Anything you do in the valley, you give a prashad, you give gift to the to the deity. And the local are of the highest caste. You don't touch them. You don't touch their house. They were only one place where you could stay in the eighties was the house of a, a, a low-caste man. And all the deals that you could do in that village were through that uh, low-caste person. And you could stay one night or two nights because you would live in the house of that guy with his wife and three kids and stuff. So people were walking a day or so of uh, a day and a half, a day of walk like uh, strong, spend, uh, spend the night by their ash, go down. We went there and went in the summer pasture of the valley and we were staying months. And we were kind of the first one uh, to do that type of stuff. And uh, year after year, we, they, gave us, they gave us more. They, at the end, they even let us stay in one of their uh, summer pasture house because we were with Brahmin that are also high caste. As a foreigner, because we don't have a caste, you're lower than the lowest of the lowest. You don't even have one. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you can't go lower than that. For, for them to deal with us was huh. a bit difficult. If you show up, and live with somebody that is basically the same caste level than you, then they see you in a different way. 
You know what I mean? It's like yeah. if a Brahmin eats in the same plate than me, uh, it makes it really different for, for them. So when we were not in the village, they, we would, they would touch us, they would cook for us, but they wouldn't eat what they could because it's our plate. They would even hug us. They, they would do a lot of stuff. But when you go to the village, you have that. Yeah, sort of a standoffish. Uh, it's not that. It's it's uh, it's religious, dude. It's like it's uh, it's part of their uh, of their lives. There's a there's a dude of the mountain, descendant possibly of how uh, uh, is Alexander the the Great uh, Conquest and, and stuff. They have there is so much mythology behind the, the village of Malana and. Man, those people, they own respect. Oh, la, 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 la. <laughs> the vibe of the village, like the temple. Now it's burned, but like that temple, you can feel it. Vibration, the vibration from it is like, dude, you pay respect to the, to the deity of the valley, my lord. Uh, and now, I have been asked by the people of Malana to go back actually today. And I was telling the guy, it's like, there is no way I would come to Malana and change tradition if I don't have the benediction of the Devta. Today, actually, they were bringing the, they, there is one time a year when they take the deity and they bring it to the main valley. It's a super religious holy day. And they ask, I asking them on that specific day. And the guy tell me, it's like, dude, <laughs> the Dev, the, the Devta, let you stay in that valley for so long. It's like the Devta gave you the permission. And now you ask the permission again, and it's on the most holy day of it. I think you can come and make the charafon there. <laughs> Ice water stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. You mentioned like, the spiritual side of, of your trip to India and, and that it was all spiritual for you. So, so you could feel this in your body? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is some really powerful place in, in wow. India. Some of those temples, dude, they radiate power. Mm -hmm. some, some of the, like all the village in the mountain in the Himalaya, every village have a temple. They have a deity specific to the, to the village. It's fucking powerful. That's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> I can yeah, see Yeah, no, there is, there is so many powerful places in India, religious, that I have been. Dude, you feel the power through the fucking temple. You're outside. You can feel the fucking stone vibrate from what's inside, I swear. Wow. I oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> that is fascinating. Can we get on to hash? I mean, hash, in its essence, is the, the harvesting and collection of trichomes. Now, one thing that I think a lot of our listeners will be fascinated with and possibly don't know is that there are different types of trichomes on the cannabis plant and we have glandular and we have non-glandular trichomes. So can you explain a little bit about the differences in those trichomes, if, if you can, and um, what exactly we are trying yeah. to harvest? So it's like when I came to the States, I, I was really good at making ash and charas. But I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea what was a trichome. I had never seen a trichome in my life. We call that pollen. 
So I was super good with the tool, totally, totally ignorant about the product I was working with. I'm, I'm a craftsman. It's like there is first the product and the product defines the tool and that everything that is in my life is the product and the tool. And I knew only the tool. So I started to study Tricom. What are Tricom? It's a defensive system of the plant kingdom. And it can produce 200,000 organic compounds from the most deadly to the most beneficial and everything in between. And we don't know the power that is inherent to that 200,000 compound. What the plant kingdom can do with that, we have no idea whatsoever. So that was pretty trippy <laughs> for an introduction <laughs> to Tricom. It's like, oh, wow, okay. okay. So what's different with cannabis Tricom? So they have five different types of Tricom. There is two that are non-glandular, that are mostly to, uh, that are appear straight with the first leaf. They are uh, a protection against predator, a protection against climatic condition also. It buffer a little bit and protect from uh, losing humidity. Um, but it's mostly a predator uh, protection. Uh, have you, uh, you must have people who are allergic to trimming plant, uh, live plant. That's those little trichom that make it so. Uh -huh. It's their abrasive and they have uh, organic compound on, on it that make you not want to do to touch it. It's a protection. Then you have three types of glandular trichom. A tiny little one that they call bulbous. We don't really know what it is. It's supposed to, uh, to be uh, creating some organic compound that cleans the leaf, but we don't really have any idea. It's, uh, it's really super tiny, 10 micron of circumference with a tiny, tiny little stock. You hardly can see it. It's rare when you have a, a nice uh, picture of a, of tricon from a cannabis plant and you see them. Then you have the capitat cecil, is that a bigger gland that looks like it's directly on the plant material, but if you look on the horizontal, you can see a little stalk. This produce cannabinoid, the first one bulbous do, do not. Uh, what's interesting, it's that 80% of the capitat cecil actually become Capitat stock. And the capitat stock is the one you want because the chamber is way much bigger than the capitat cecil. And he had that long stock. And those are really used to, uh, as a defensive system for the plant. Everything that is produced in the gland is so toxic that it's the plant need to create an ex, a protuberance to contain it. But the plant has total uh, power on what's happening in that gland, how much is exude the, the, the thickness of the membrane, the ratio of monoterpene and sesquiterpene, that's the plant that manipulated to be able to deal with the outside world. 
What's fascinating is that the cannabinoid, the plant, can biosynthesize the two most common organic compounds in the plant kingdom, terpen and phenol. But the thing is, terpen and phenol are both toxic and terpen highly toxic. The plant can literally biosynthesize two toxic compounds and create 155 plus medicinal compounds. That was a pretty amazing news too. And I started to learn that. It's like, dude. So now the next step was, okay, so how do the cannabinoids form each other? You know what I mean? And it starts all with the CBGA. Then the first synthesis that was ever done by the plant was CBD. CBDA synthesis is older than the THCA synthesis. And so by learning that the CBGA creates CBDA, THCA, CBCA, that I can transform again into active compound CBD, THC, CBC, and then I can bring it further and make CBN or CBND. Dude, now I can make pure CBD ash. Now I'm not only making ash. I'm making ash depending on what I want because I know what's going on in those glands that I didn't know the name of. And that's like when you get the science behind what you do, like knowing what is a, a gland, knowing that the gland is attached to the stock by an abscission that is like, a, a, like you have for a fruit or a leaf, And that abscission becomes smaller and smaller, the ripest the, the gland is, and then it just falls by itself. That changed my life. Now I'm not looking at a plant with microscopic gland that I want to collect. Now I can imagine a fruit tree. How do you, how do you collect the, the ripest fruit from a fruit tree? Or you go touch and smell, or you shake a tiny bit, and you have the ripest fruit falling down. And then a little bit stronger, and you have that second level of ripeness. And I shake my tree harder and harder until there is no fruit. And every one of my temple ball is like the, the dimension of ripeness of the whole tree. Doesn't matter the size, doesn't matter the color. That gland was attached to the stock by that much. And that much means that they're all the same ripeness. If I shake that, that apply that much force, all of those fall at the same time. And dude, it gave me an accuracy. Now I can tell you to the day if you harvest too early or too late your plant wow. by pressing the, the gland and looking at the resin. A simple little fact like that changed everything for me. So like, science, you want to make ash, you want to work in the cannabis industry as in general, know your plant. The more you know, the more uh, the more impact you will have in uh, in the cannabis industry and the cannabis community. That's really cool that you that you break it down like that. And one thing that that sort of comes back to is throughout your travels, you've experienced different locations with different forms of hash, um, and I'm sure that you experience different flavors, uh, different experiences, uh, different aromas. Um, so then. 
another thing is the different effects. And you speak about your Lebanese hash, your experience with Lebanese hash, and uh, your desire to get back to back to that experience. And I guess now we can start looking into the development from CBG, how it converts to your CBDA, um, your THCA. And we can refer back to the Lebanese varieties, the land race varieties that may have been higher in CBD. And uh, I guess, could you go into a little bit about how each regional area may have unique characteristics based on this chemistry that you've learned? So, so you know, I, I, when I was smoking, we were so ignorant that we had nothing, okay? But what we had were six flavors, basically. Moroccan, Lebanese, Middle East, Paki, Afghani, and uh, Nepal, India. Not knowing what was inside wasn't really a, a question for us. Uh, but not so long ago, I wrote an article about a scientific study done on 10 years of, uh, of bust of uh, arrest in Israel. And uh, from stuff coming from Morocco, Lebanon, and India. Okay, from... Uh, 85 to 2000 or something like that. Like a, a little bit after my time, but not so much after my time that there must be a huge difference uh, in quality. And But it was all about THC, CBC, uh, CBD, C, uh, CBC, CBN. And it appears that the Lebanese is one-on-one, -on -one, and there is so little, the level of THC is so low, uh, I think it was 4 or 7%, that I had a hard time believing that I smoked my first red Lebanese, I was 17, I did smoke a bunch of Lebanese in that time because it it was Lebanese war, and we had a lot of stuff coming from Lebanon, going to Germany for uh, arm uh, exchange and stuff. I did smoke a lot of Leb Lebanese, and I am very, very, very much in love with Lebanese. The buzz, everything was like, I have a, a strong, memorable memory of smoking Lebanese. And... When you tell me that the stuff is one-on-one, 4% -on -one, THC, dude, no fucking way. The, uh, Morocco, 2 to 1 THC CBD, and also a level of, uh, of THC really low, under 10%, I think, 8 or 9, like ridiculous. It's like no fucking way. And Charas from India, uh, I think it was the highest level of THC, the lowest level of CBD, but it wasn't that great either. It's like, I think 17% or like nothing or 14%. I would have to look again at, at my paper, nothing great at all. And it's like at the end of the paper, when I, I, I was talking about it, writing my paper at the end, he said, dude, it's like, this really show how much an impact the entourage effect has outside the main component, the main cannabinoid element. You know what I mean? Because uh, I, uh, yes, it was a long time ago, 
But uh, I did smoke Lebanese for a long time. I did smoke ash Moroccan for a long time. I made ash in Morocco. I've never been to Lebanon, but it's like it's ash. I know really well. It's like the charas from India, the buzz of the charas from India is so amazing. Like super uplifting, skiddy. You can last forever. You start smoking the first things in the morning and you still break wood and walk all day long. And you know what I mean? It's like... There is a lot of power and energy behind, and you tell me it's weaker than some of the normal weed I smoke in uh, in California. It's like no way. There is so much more power to it. It cannot be only the amount of THC and CBD and uh, and CBN that you can count it. It's like it's uh, it's it's. The whole, uh, it's a whole package that make it happen. It's not really cutting down by, uh, by cannabinoids that you're going to understand the power of the plant. It's because it's all that package together that you really have such an effect with, uh, with the plant. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's really cool. Um, it, it was crazy, dude. It's like my Lebanese 4% THC. Come on. <laughs> I can't believe it. So then we come down to, I guess, the the, the whole profile um, and it, it sort of comes back to the the so-called entourage effect um, and how all of these compounds interact with each other um, that give you that unique sort of uh, unique effect. Now, Frenchie, you're a advocate for i guess some sort of regulation or or certification scheme uh for geographic regional um varieties of of hash and cannabis uh i guess you're pushing for it in california with some of the farms or you're you're calling for it um can you describe what you're sort of leaning at because you do mention bordeaux wines um and you're you're hoping because because if something is good, it's because it comes from a specific place and that has a specific climate. And if it's not natural, somebody did a hell of a good job to make it that special. Yeah. It's, it's my culture. And when I traveled, when I was in India, nobody cared really much that I made the, the charas. Mm -hmm. What they wanted to do, it's where I was. So if I tell them, yeah, I was in Tosh Naktang doing my jungle and Waichin in Malana Valley, I was the only dude in Waichin. That's the value of the ash. It's not me making it. It's where I want to do it. So when I want to, uh, when I came to California, it was the same. It's a producing place. You need to go deep into the producing place to be able to get the good stuff. Then when I was there, yeah, it's a long, the climate, hell yeah. The genetic, yeah, but the genetics, there is a breeder behind. It's not land race anymore, like I, like I always add. So there is, that's another world altogether. And there is actually a farmer because in producing country, even when they farm, they just break ground and throw the seeds. And at the raining season, that's it. Thank you very much. They harvest six months later. So when you have a farmer that dedicates his life basically to growing his plants, they don't name the plants, they don't give them name, but almost they know them so well. They give so much dedication to the plant that 
in my head, I became a winemaker. I work with cultivar and vineyard. And the credit goes to the people who give me the grape. I mean, have you ever seen the name of a winemaker on a wine bottle? We don't care. What we care is to make the good stuff so that people can really blow their palate off. That's, that's my reward. It's to give that pleasure. I don't, I don't need them to connect it with my name. I want them to connect it to where I did it because it's not me making it that make it that great. It's because I got greatness that I can make that. I'm nothing without my farmer. I wouldn't exist without them. So it's like the credit giving back to the place of origin, it's super important. And being able for Mendocino, Humboldt and Trinity to protect their name that nobody can use them, it's fucking vital because there is a world market coming. So even that protection is important. And then there is the whole appellation, it's a dedication to quality, to the extreme, extreme quality. To be able to have the state of California, the fifth economic world power that would dedicate themselves to that goal would be amazing. If it could go beyond cannabis and all the agricultural products that we produce here and it would be all regenerative farming, well, if we could be the icebreaker for some stuff like that, that's what I'm, that's why the appellation are important because there is, there is a marketing here, yeah, but that marketing, if you don't give the quality, they don't, you lose it. You know what I mean? So beyond marketing, it's like that level of excellence necessitates standardization that can save the planet. So being able to have that platform because appellation is the soil. A living soil, it's what makes our planet alive. If we kill our soil, we're dead. And we're killing it really bad. So it's like, when the French did it in the 1800s, soil was important. But now, soil is the only way for us to save the planet. So to have the appellation on a platform like that, with movie like Kiss the Ground and uh, dedicated to... Uh, to regenerative farming, it became much, much, much bigger than cannabis. And that's the beauty of it because it's like we have to become part of a farming community that is beyond just growing cannabis. A farming community that is dedicated to regenerative farming and saving the planet for the, for the next generation. That's really, really cool. Um, and I think it's a great concept and yeah, congratulations for, for putting that forward and uh, putting it out there for the people to, to sort of take hold of and grasp. I think one of our friends, uh, Tom Forrest, who's now with a, a company in New Zealand called Puro, I believe they've just got licensing to uh, produce, I believe the world's largest organically certified uh, cannabis farm and they'll be using completely uh, regenerative methods, methodology uh, for their farm. And it's because of people like you that, that put it out there and, and speak about it that uh, it, it gives these people confidence to, it, to move forward. It's not only like 
I, I, I'm big, I have a big voice, I'm noisy, and people know me, I can say shit, people listen, but it goes way beyond me. Anybody that is involved with cannabis has the same responsibility than me. We have more responsibility toward the planet than anybody else because we're dealing with a plant that can actually save the planet as a natural resource. So it's like when you buy your stuff, if you buy CBD, uh, is it CBD? Huh? What did they do with the fucking stock and, uh, and material? Did they do something with it uh, as a as a natural resource or they just burn it or let it rot? If they let it rot, I don't touch it. If you grow CBD flowers just to make money on the CBD market because it's hot now, dude, you're killing the, you're part of the problem. And as a buyer, if I buy that product, I'm fucking part of the problem too. So it's like, doesn't matter what you do. You touch cannabis, you better educate yourself because we have that responsibility. We need to know what the fuck we're doing because we, we're connected with that plant that can fucking save us. So it's like being blind and not educated when you're in it, shame on us. Yeah, I love the passion. It's it's really cool. It's great to talk to you, Frenchie. Um, we're pretty much at the end of our time slot for today, but we have been told by Kimberly, and a big shout out to your wife, Kimberly. Uh, she's lovely as well. And uh, a lot goes on behind the scenes with her. So thank thank her for, for her involvement too, Frenchie. Um, and we have confirmed that we'll be having another chat with you, mate, and we'll be talking about the history of hash making. And I do urge our guests, uh, our listeners, sorry, to to jump on and check out your articles. You have an abundance of articles on Weed World magazine. Um, you're a great writer. You've you've got a real uh, a real art with the way you write, and it's it's they're, they're all great reads. So I do urge the listeners to jump on and, as Frenchie says, educate yourself, learn about the plant. Um, it's a wealth of information that's really fascinating and worth a read. Um, Frenchie, it's been a pleasure having you on. Um, yeah, and I've got to say, uh, hearing hearing the stories from when you were 18, traveling to different countries, I've got to say myself, um, I'm 18 and that just sounds amazing to me. <laughs> to anybody who wants to do what I was doing, it's fucking easy. Sell your shit, get the money, get out. If you like it, it's going to be like addictive. You may have a hard time stopping traveling. Even if you don't like it, when you come back, you're going to be bigger than you were. And what you left behind is only stuff that you sold. You can come back and buy the new shit anyway. But what all you, if you don't have a family, what all you, it's material stuff. That material stuff, you can get rid of it to get the money to do something. And if you like it, you keep doing it. If you don't like it, well, you go back and buy your stuff and get back to what you like better. But don't tell yourself that you cannot do it because you can. It's only an excuse if you don't. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great feedback and uh, something to take on board for the younger listeners that, as you say, that maybe don't have families and and uh, maybe, yeah, as you say, they, they're surrounded by material things, but sometimes you've got to let go of that stuff and go and find yourself. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Frenchie. I really appreciate your time today, mate, and thank you so much for coming on board. And we talk next time about the history of Ash? Absolutely, absolutely. Really looking forward to it. It's very nice to you, guys.
Thank you so much, Frenchie. It's been a pleasure, mate. Cheers, Take mate. care, bud. <laughs> Cheers, man. Thank you for listening to another episode of Canter. Any guest views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and not necessarily those of the hosts. Canter strongly suggests listeners research local, state, and federal laws and regulations before conducting any cannabis-related activity. 